HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi there, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here at Heritage Radio Network. And today, I want to talk to you about something you're all very familiar with, but not in the way we're going to be speaking about it. Aunt Jemima. You all know the image. You've seen it a million times, whether it's on the box of pancake mix or other baked goods. A couple of centuries, or like a hundred years, I would believe, this demeaning moniker and stereotype has maligned kitchen servants and cooks who, over two centuries, presented food to people that was never, never acknowledged. One woman is doing quite a bit to break that image and the, and the stereotype, and that is Tony Tipton Martin. Tony is an author, a food journalist, and a community activist. She's the founder and director of the Sandy Youth Project at University of Texas at Austin. And she has done an amazing um, bit of outreach work, on, particularly with youth, to help them be, live a more nutritional life. And in fact, she won a prize for the, at the, um, the Southern Foodways Alliance, the John Edgerton Prize for this work. And with that prize, she was able to host a very important conference that just took place this past year, the Soul Summit, a conversation about race, identity, power, and food in Austin. And Tony has been working on uh, a project to break this Jemima Code, as she calls it, for quite some time, something that's been going on for a lot longer than what she's been working on, and so important to her. This work has culminated in a new book called The Jemima Code, Two Centuries of African-American Cookbooks. And I am very pleased to have with me Tony now to talk about this and tell us all about this book and her upcoming book, The Joy of African-American Cooking. Welcome, Tony. 
Thank you so much for Linda. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, now you were on with me three. I, I looked at the at the um, the list of shows, and it was three years ago. I can't believe it was three years ago. And then we talked about um, your project, breaking the Jemima Code. And I'm uh, now that it's culminated into this wonderful book. Tell our listeners what this project, what this book, how it started out, what it is, what's what it's all about. Well, um, you know, you did such a great job in your opening of explaining this idea of breaking a code. We all know that we live with codes of every kind around us. There are Morse codes. There are bar codes. The idea of a code is something that um, communicates a message from one person or group to another, right? Right. And, And so this idea that there is a Jemima code. Um, For me, um, it really um, is this idea that um, actions, thoughts, behaviors, opinions are all um, crafted, generated out of this trademarked image um, that was built basically on a myth. It was built on a code, coded language, um, collecting various characteristics and aspects of African-American women in the kitchen into this one stereotyped symbol that can communicate different um, messages to different communities. So she means one thing to white people. She means something different to black people. She, she communicates across class lines. And, and so our idea with this book is that when you encounter the image on the cover right up front, you're, you're asked, subconsciously to think about what encoded messages you are sensing when you interact with this image. That's right. That's right. And, you know, it's interesting I, when you said it, the image, of course, speaks different things to different people. And, you know, there's always the kind of the warm and fuzzy mammy who's sort of slapping together a, a comfort meal, you know, for a family and that leads us into something that was really quite troubling to you and, well, to society as well. And how, what went amiss there? Well, you know, um, scholars, uh, feminist scholars, women's studies scholars, African-American scholars have been doing a lot more research um, in recent years into this idea of um, the nostalgia that created the Mammy character in the first place. Right, she seems to have been, um, to some extent, a figment of literary imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, that isn't to say that black women did not exist in the households of southern plantations. It's not to say that they didn't do a tremendous amount of work. It isn't to say any of those kinds of things that we all know and believe about them. But this idea that multiple characteristics <laughs> existed and created this one superwoman. Um, who was at one point very um, strong and nurturing and supportive, but then at other points in literature and history, she's portrayed as um, unintelligent and, um, you know, ignorant Mm -hmm. in some places. So so there's been this continual confusion, if you will, um, in the minds of Americans um, about how to appreciate, to understand, to reject this woman um, because those original creators who were trying to sell more pancake mix, I think if they did what most advertisers do, they tried to incorporate as many characteristics so she could appeal across a broad uh, part of 
society. Right. right? She, could, she could appeal to numbers of people because they would have touched, uh, created all these touchstones within her character. And I think that's part of why we're all so confused now about whether the important the image is important to keep. Should we reject it? Should we you know, lobby Quaker to get rid of it? What you know? What should we be doing with her now? That's right. And and so my passion is that we should embrace her bandana and and look at her for who they look at these women and some men for who they truly were um, in the performance of their duties that's right and that's what i want to get to now because you started what 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 broke the the what started your passion to um for your collection and and then this project on on bringing to light some of the uh, very accomplished African-American cooks? Well, um, you know, I am not a collector in the traditional sense. In fact, I'm a reluctant collector. I um, was really a reporter on a story. Um, I was working for the Los Angeles Times in the food section, and I was very young, and I noticed pretty quickly that the images of African-American women, uh, as they were portrayed in American cookbooks, uh, whether they were from the South or the North, uh, or any region really, um, they were uh, usually presented in some kind of a stereotyped fashion, if they were mentioned at all. Mm-hmm. They were generally some kind of an afterthought in terms of the creation of, Afri- of American cooking. And I was young. Um, and that disturbed me. It didn't, these images did not represent the kinds of women that I knew uh, in my community that had um, nurtured and cared for for all of us. Um, but that didn't. I didn't really know what I could do about it. Um, I wasn't born in the South. I didn't have deep roots that traced to the South. So there wasn't anybody I could interview, right, and ask these questions that I had. And um, being a good reporter, I knew I needed somebody to talk to. And so cookbooks started to emerge for me as a possible way to hear the authentic, true voice of a person speaking on her own behalf. Mm. And, and even in the case where white women had to translate the books for these women, which is really quite a beautiful synergistic thing um, that did occur along the way. So I want to make sure that readers are aware that this is not, you know, this book is not an attack on um, <clears throat> broader communities that that would have, um, in some ways, did disparage these people. But there are great souls along the way that we learn about too. Right. Well. Well. And. and- <laughs> Finding some of these original voices was not an easy task because, um, as culinary historians knew for years, it was very difficult to find any uh, written collections of recipes. We, what Mrs. Fisher knew, we know that that book about Southern cooking. Um, so you set about finding some of these voices, right? I did. Um, I was um, gifted with um, the first book. Um, it, while I was at the Times on staff, um, there was uh, we used to have a giveaway for books that were um, sent into the department for review. And um, in that uh, collection, there was a book um, called The New Orleans Cookbook by Lena Richard. And at the time, I had no idea who Lena Richard was. Um, there was no image of her, no photograph of her as being a black woman. But I thought, well, New Orleans cooking is close to what I'll be looking for, so I will um, hang on to this one for a while. Um, and time passed, and uh, the deeper my engagement with Southern Foodways Alliance and the appreciation for the diversity 
in Southern cooking, um, I, I got my strength and began to collect more in earnest, um, asking friends who travel to check on check-in bookstores, antique bookstores, and in secondhand stores, thrift shops. And, and over time, I started this teeny little collection of just a handful of books. Um, and so it wasn't until the um, emergence of the Internet and the ability to search by browser that I was actually able to visit um, antique stores virtually um, because booksellers were then putting their inventory on line, <clears throat> and I could use the University of Alabama's um, bibliography of these books as my shopping list. Yeah, it's interesting, and I'm sure that many of these are... I, you did a wonderful um, visual exhibit, the photographs of all these, the covers of many of these books, and that was that was very stimulating because you could see that there was, some of it were just, they were little paper pamphlets, and some were very small books others were as you say helped along the way you know and published and and it just was uh such an eye-opener to um to what we didn't know i think that's that's the best way that i can describe it things that we didn't know that um existed and uh indeed a lot of times these cooks were associated with as you say poverty their poverty kitchens that they were often cooking in but they also cooked in great kitchens, um, whether it was as slaves or as servants, with incredible uh, availability of resources. And from then, then they became very educated in, in the cooking. And so from that, you you have opened our eyes to some of these very uh, accomplished cooks. And tell us something, so a little bit about that. Sure. I love, and please apologize, I apologize, I'm suffering from allergies a little bit here. <clears throat> um, I love the idea of being able to show the dexterity um, and the nimbleness of these cooks, right? These are people, as you said, who who traditionally we know of as uh, people who had to feed their families um, on very slim uh, resources, um, either whatever was given to them, whatever was left over, and then, of course, their ingenuity with what was in their natural environment, hunting and gathering, as we say. Um, but there's an entirely different side of them, this idea of what it means to cook when you have um, an infinite, you have infinite access to great, great ingredients and resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is there that their intelligence just continues to bloom because now we can see them as people who did not have the ability to read or write, and yet they managed within their memories this tremendous recall for hundreds of recipes, right? A a, uh, household employer or mistress might read a recipe to this woman and explain to her the way that she wanted a dish, and then this woman had to remember that. She did not have the benefit that most of us have of just returning to the shelf and opening the book uh, to refresh her memory. These women had to know how to do that um, on a regular basis. And so what I really like um, about the Jemima Code is that traditionally we have given African-American cooks a lot of attention and credit for what we call the soul foods, the foods that they cooked with their ingenuity and their imaginations and their creative style, and even with some reaching back to those African techniques that certainly would have been um, within their psyches and their their memory. Um, But here we're beginning to now see them for the food that they cook at work. 
And that's not a, not a space that we've allowed them to enjoy intelligence in. We've kind of perceived them, perceived them there as either um, unintelligent laborers who were just taking instruction, or we've, in, we've thought of them as people cooking by natural instinct. Um, and either way, it, it really has blocked all of us, whether we're black or white or low or high or middle income. Who wants to go into the kitchen if, if the perception that it is a place for slaving in the kitchen still exists? Mm-hmm. And, and so that's why it's so important to me um, and to us as a broader culinary community to, to inspire young people by helping them understand that their ancestors performed much greater accomplishments in the kitchen than than just um, being the servant. That's right. Well, how how many of these books did you end up with uh, total to you know to to sort of form the basis of your of your research for the book? So um, I have about three hundred of them, hmm. um, which is really uh, sounds like a lot for me, but for us uh, in terms of um, when we compare that to the 100,000 books that are published, um, cookbooks that are published at any given time, to have only 300 reflected um, in the African-American canon is pretty small. Right. Um, the University of Alabama, as I said, which is uh, the holder of the greatest collection that I know of, of these books, um, they list about 450 on their uh, site. And many of those are regional, right? They're books that I would never have access to because people in the area can bring over their community and church cookbooks. Right. Um, there are some duplicates on that list as well. There are books that are perhaps in first, second, third edition, multiple editions. Um, so when I talk about my 300, uh, I'm speaking specifically of um, singular editions uh, extracted from that bibliography at um, Alabama. Interesting, and and some just amazing stories. Um, well, first of all, what I like about it too, and you you mentioned um, that you weren't when you found something. You had some of these antique booksellers, and I know you were just in New York uh, this week. In fact, signing books at Bonnie Slotnick's, and she helped find a few of you. But you said a few of the books for you, and you said that you were not daunted by the fact that many were had uh, maybe grease stains on them or you know, marks in the margins, which I'm sure you felt, and I know most of us who who collect books know that that makes them all the more endearing, right? Absolutely. It it certainly um, adds to their character, and it adds to their value, right? Because now these are books, uh, these are recipes that we know have been tested and tried Mm -hmm. um, in in the generation in which they were published, right? So I've been... As you mentioned, um, I spent the summer testing a great number of these recipes to modernize them for the next book, which we have. Um, we were working with the joy of African-American cooking as uh, our working title, but um, we have moved on from that um, uh, in large measure because of some of, so much of the reaction that we're getting um, on the road with interest to, in this material and seeing the sense of freedom that has been created now um, by these authors and their ability to have a voice. And so the book is, the working title now um, for that book is Jubilee. Oh, okay. And, and, and we're thrilled um, with that idea. Um, um, but, yeah, the idea that they were gently used and worn um, 
really was part of the endearing, the, what was endearing to me about them, because now I had an additional view into that community, the, the notes that were made um, where one cook might say, very good next to a dish in, mm-hmm. in her pencil, in her handwriting. Um, and there's always open note pages. Um, and so we, we can also um, see their adaptations of a dish uh, on those pages as well. Well, I want to hear more um, specific stories about these, um, and I will get to that when we return after a short break. So stay with us. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will, too. And I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. We are back, and uh, I'm talking with Tony Tipton Martin about her new book, The Jemima Code Two Centuries of African American Cookbooks. And you know, Tony, you were talking before about um, uh, we were talking about the, the cooks and when they had poorer in, uh, ingredients than they had in the maybe grand houses, people, employers that they worked for <clears throat> cooking what we know as soul food. And not always poor ingredients, some very excellent ingredients as well. But that there is a lingering stereotype um, with African American cooks, and that is that they are only associated with cooking soul food. How are we going to break out of that one? Well, that's really um, one of the main themes that emerges here in this collection of books. Um, they they form a natural social history um, once you spread them all out and look at them chronologically. And what is reflected here is clearly middle-class cooking, um, cooking with those very resources. Um, and that's a part of our community that has not been explored mm-hmm. uh, very often. Um, we do tend to be referred to um, as the great soul cooks, um, and, and as those invisible participants in the creation of Southern uh, cooking. And, and so that distinction of trying to draw a racial line between ingredients uh, is, is a challenge that I admit I was not even able to completely resolve. Um, uh-huh. th- this idea that, the, that we're talking about the food of a region, that region being the South, so Southern cooking, but looking at it as white or black, um, you know, it's it's a complicated story, and um, what I like to do is just focus primarily on the fact that these books reflect the effort of the ancestors 
to demonstrate what they were teaching one another about cooking with intelligence so that in the um, 19th century we see household servants who are training up one another, for example. Um, that can be perceived negatively, as it has been, that, um, that we were just limited to work of servitude and, and being trained continually in that effort. But if we look below the surface at what it took to do that job, then we can hear the character of the author as that author is explaining to the next generation how to get the work done and what they value, um, what their work ethic is, um, and, and the depth of knowledge that, that is communicated in that transmission, which would ordinarily be oral, but in, in these rare occasions, as in the case of Robert Roberts, for example, in 1827, we're able to see what he conveyed specifically to the next generation of servants. And that, and that practice goes on throughout this collection. At the turn of the century, uh, when Friedman's communities were building up what we now call historically black colleges and universities, those Friedman schools were in the business of training more domestic servants and, and more household workers. But we're also able to see uh, the level of science in their knowledge, mm-hmm. right? They, they might, these cooks might say, I'm going to put on a pot of beans, and what they were really doing was creating a stock. They just didn't have the language uh, to convey that. Right, All right. Um, can you share with us, I, there are a couple of books, um, I know some of the older books that um, have some rather poignant stories, uh, as you've been talking about them, and, and as are in the book. Um, there are a couple of older books that... And, um, maybe you could tell us a little bit, like Melinda Russell, or um, or maybe oh, the story. Well, yeah, Melinda Russell or uh, Robert Robert Roberts, as you just mentioned before. Um, uh, some of those. What what type of cooking were they doing that would be surprising to people when they read the book? Well, uh, you know, I've uh, they. They're doing the kind of cooking that we know that they were cooking, household, uh, the households of the elite in the South. Um, so it's largely Southern cooking, but it's elegant Southern cooking. It's the kind of food that's on a buffet table. It's um, their banquet foods. Um, but they're also foods in, that are regional, that reflect regionality, so that the Negro Culinary Arts Club of 1936 in Los Angeles um, they're making the same kinds of um, elegant salads using lobster and um, higher-end ingredients or regional ingredients, like or take a chilies in their dishes. Um, and and so, what is going to be surprising to some people is the the claiming of dishes that seem to contradict the idea of poverty cooking exclusively. Right. Um, and, and this idea that that's not African-American. And, and what I like to challenge people to think about is the fact that we, we celebrate amazing uh, chefs today without knowing what it is that they cook at home. They're honored and respected for the food that they cook at work, in that's their right. restaurants, on their television shows. But we don't know whether they eat peanut butter and jelly or elaborate dishes at home with their children. And, and so that same philosophy has got to convey to African Americans as well. So I'm not claiming that we did anything 
necessarily different or grander than any other culture. What I'm saying is that we have not been allowed to exist within the space of ownership of the foods that we prepared professionally. Right. No, you're absolutely right about about what one is known for. Um, however, in the case of the African-American cooks, they sort of were the invisible people in the kitchen and rarely received credit for a lot of the, the dishes or recipes that they may have created. Um, and that, that, I think, is something that, well, may be forever lost, but certainly with your book, you are bringing so much of that to light. And, and I think it's it's... Absolutely fascinating, um, some of these, uh, the old pamphlet books especially. I mean, it just, they're really, and you mentioned that, um, was it Frida DeKnight was somebody who was was a, an eye-opener for you in terms of of the um, the cooking of the, the black cooks around the country. Yeah, what I like about Frida DeKnight is that um, I relate to her. In fact, my work really parallels her work. Um, in 1948, she was the food editor for Ebony Magazine, uh, which was the, black, the magazine of the black middle class. Mm-hmm. And um, as their food editor, she bore a great deal of intelligence in home economics and domestic science. And what she did was she used her, that space as food in her food columns um, as a platform for the middle class and their cooking. And so when she created the book, A Date with a Dish, she um, recruited recipes. For, she aggregated recipes from uh, cooks all over the country to demonstrate not only diversity um, of talent, but diversity of ingredient, uh, regionality. Um, and she explains quite clearly what her motive is. She wants to break the stereotype, and she says that in the 40s. Um, So these are not people that didn't understand how they had been portrayed and the limits that were uh, placed upon them. I think that she was clearly aware of the opportunity, as I am, that exists um, within the food industry um, for economic opportunity once you're able to establish yourself, and, and our people were not able to do that. And so it seems really admirable to me that she took that on as her cause in produ- producing this book um, of hundreds of recipes. This is not one of those pamphlets. Um, this is a 600-some page book with three to four recipes packed tight per page. And you say and it presents a regionality uh, uh, to... Um gathered from all around mm-hmm, the country. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, and it's not to, and, and the whole discussion too, not to, you know, the African-American cook doing most of the cooking in the South and then from which perhaps, you know, sprang the soul food, uh, you know, as what we call soul food, even though it goes beyond, not to malign soul food because it's, <laughs> it's excellent and everybody loves to eat that. But, but to acknowledge, and this book does such a wonderful job, to acknowledge the richness and diversity of the cooking, as you say, with Frida DeKnight's um, representation of all the regional differences of, of cooking that was going on, and also the food knowledge um, and you know and instructional um, expertise that I think goes far beyond what most people think of when they when they have that image of Aunt Jemima. That is so true. And, and you know, um, the challenge has been um, representing this material in a way that is not um, 
perpetuating any further barriers between us culturally or by class, right? right. The idea that um, these cooks shared some of the very same qualities as their counterparts of other cultures is really an important thing to acknowledge without having to take that away from anyone else, right? They can exist on their own as being intelligent without that having to say, but you weren't, <laughs> right? It, it, this whole idea in Southern and Seoul, like there's some taking away from one or the other. As Natalie Dupree has, you know, generously and beautifully articulated, that was the food of everyone in the South at one point. Mm-hmm. And how it became segregated is a matter for history historians to study. Um, I do make some dis- brief discussion of it, but but that's really not my focus here. Um, I want to be able to explain that African-American cooks cook with some of those same competencies. Uh, and this is a particularly sensitive topic for me because I have received already a couple of, you know, remarks about letters, frankly, of people saying, you know, why are you trying to claim that they did something that they didn't do and or that other people didn't do? And and I am not suggesting that. What I'm saying is that we have not acknowledged that they cooked with an intelligence. I want to make sure that that is really clear, Linda, that they cooked with an intelligence just the way that others did. They learned on the job. Mm-hmm. Um, they brought techniques with them from Africa so that while the rest of the world might have been cooking over an open fire and frying and uh, baking in leaves and using nuts to thicken, we were doing that. Um, and it isn't that somehow once we got on those slave ships and, and made that passage, we forgot all of that right. <laughs> knowledge. Um, those people, as Karen has, have said, has said so beautifully as well, somehow that seeps into your 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 practice. And any of you, any of your listeners, all of us that are cooks, know that you can give us both. You and I could stand side by side, right? And we could be given the same ingredients. And if I stir to the left and you stir to the right, we may come out with a very different dish. That's right. Um, and and your version will be known as your version, and my version will be known as my version. And and all I'm suggesting is that in in light of copyright protections, uh, intellectual property law, all of these things that we haven't allowed to, uh, to be applied to this group of people, that we should start to think of them in that way. Well, your book is certainly uh, a, a great contribution to that effort and to that study. And. And I thank you so much for joining me and sharing the information on this. And I urge people if they, you know, it's a book that, that people should read because it's it's very interesting. Again, it is the Jemima Code, Two Centuries of African-American Cookbooks. And in fact, as one, uh, someone, a Facebook follower, when I mentioned that you were going to be on the show, she said, I have to have this book in my life. So it's, <laughs> it's something that uh, I think that is going to make a tremendous um, impact, and, and good luck to you. And I look forward to Jubilee. That's the book that I'm going to um, look forward to getting next uh, when you is a culmination of all this. And I thank you for sticking with this because it is such, such an important project and such an important book. Thanks so much, Tony Tipton-Martin. Thank you so much for Linda. Really for having me, Linda. I really appreciate it. That's my pleasure. And thank you for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And I'd like to thank my engineer, Liz Smith. 
Today's break music was provided by the Soulful Saints, and the theme song to my show was created by Bohemia. Our sponsor today, I would like to thank, is Fairway Market. Also, thank you, listener, for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please tell your friends to tune in, too, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. And feel free to get in touch with us at heritageradionetwork.org. And if you are really an avid listener and love what you hear, on our homepage there is an easy way that you can help us out, and that's a donate button. Just click that button, and you can help support this program and so many others that appear on this network, that you can hear on this network. And next up, I'm, you're going to hear a short clip of The Speakeasy, another great show found right here on Heritage Radio Network. Well, first of all, fall is my favorite season yeah, for, for cocktails. And it's just, like you said, you know, you're at, it's during harvest season. You've got all this beautiful, beautiful produce and different, like, just like everything. Everything's happening during, like, the end of the summer and early fall. On episode 137 of The Speakeasy, master bartender Aaron Polsky talks to host Damon Bolte on why fall is such a perfect time to make great cocktails. There are just new ingredients that are available to us in general. You know, and that's great. Like the accessibility and availability of spices and good quality produce on the wholesale level is awesome. And also the technology to make them work fast. So everybody, well, not everybody, but you and I know the Dave Arnold pioneered uh, rapid infusion technique with an EC container. And of course you can do that with a cryovac or as I recently discovered a food saver with a a handy food saver Tupperware canister attachment. You can make things work fast. You can experiment quickly. Uh, you can weigh things in grams. You can time how long it takes, how long you're putting suction on it, and you can get really good, uh, good bitters, good infusions, and that's great. In you know, especially for the fall, because you think of fall, you think of. I mean, all jokes aside, you do think of pumpkin spice. You <laughs> think of pumpkin pie, and you think of all those yeah. warm spices and squash and all that. Apples, pears. Apples, pears, pumpkin spice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that six six years ago, it would have been difficult to find different types of cinnamon, and now you can easily get them. Whether you know what a rapid infusion machine is, or you're a bartending novice, be sure to listen to The Speakeasy, available on Heritage Radio Network and iTunes. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.